Well, this morning I want to set before you two groups, two different groups to consider. A group one are wild animals, and group two are men. Now, I know what you're thinking. These are distinct groups, I can assure you. Wild animals in the zoo, group one, and men in our culture, group two. Now, I contend that there are those in both these groups who have been taken captive. And I want you to see if, as I read these distinctions, you can draw the distinctions. Which group am I describing? They are surrounded by people, yet live in isolation. They have everything they need, yet live in constant stress. Their life is lived for the purpose of entertainment. Their life is lived in an artificial environment. What is natural, what is instinct, what is woven into their very DNA by God has been taken away. Life is lived in a broken family structure and the design is not followed. Now in those descriptions, I describe both groups to you today. Wild animals taken into captivity, yes, that's clear enough, but also men taken into captivity. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, captive through erroneous teaching, empty deception, according to human thinking, basic principles of the world, of the many endangered species on this planet, masculine men top the list. Men who don't know who they are and what they should be. Now, both the world and the church, interestingly, will agree with that statement. The world seeks to strip down the distinctions between men and women, moving masculinity from in danger to extinct. Almost all forms of masculinity, they would say, are now toxic. The church asks, where are all the young men? But her men are too preoccupied to evangelize and to disciple them. Thankfully, God speaks to this matter. And when he does, his word speaks to who men must be. And specifically to our text this morning, it speaks to husbands. To godly husbands to a godly masculinity in husbands. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, men, we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. That tends to be our trend here at Emmanuel. So I'm not cherry-picking and standing back and thinking about all the problems that we as husbands have, though we have them. We're simply working through the text, and this is where we are today. We're out, essentially, to resurrect the masculine husband. And by masculine, again, I mean a husband who lives according to God's will in marriage. Now, it may be very tempting to think about, when we hear words like this or these kinds of topics, to think about men's duties and men's responsibilities, these tasks that he must do. In fact, many define them or themselves by what they do or their jobs. But in verse 7... 
Peter writes to who they are before what they should do. And this verse is the counterbalance to verses 1 through 6 in 1 Peter 3. Last week, it was God's design for wives. Frankly, when these seven verses are lived out, marriage flourishes. Wives submit to husbands, husbands honor wives. Paul presents a similar paradigm elsewhere in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, their wives respect husbands, and husband loves wives. And as these commands are fulfilled, it generates a response. It's almost as though God has hardwired into man and woman a particular response to these actions by the other, by the spouse. It's also worth saying that when those things aren't present, that also elicits a response. So as each lives out his purpose or her purpose for God-ordained marriage, good things happen. So this morning we turn now to husbands in verse 7. We seek God's design for husbands. And we're rejecting the slurs of toxic masculinity, the accusations and the baggage that comes with that. And we're seeking instead the beauty of a textual masculinity. What does the Bible text have to say about masculine men, masculine husbands? This morning, we're going to explore two virtues of the masculine husband. And Peter writes quite succinctly, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. You husbands in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. As an aside, some wonder at the unbalanced attention Peter gives to these two groups. You notice when he addressed his wives, the first six verses are to wives, and then this one verse is to husbands. Why the difference? Why the imbalance of, of attention? Well, there's different reasons for this, at least different ideas about why Peter did this. And just to give you a couple of views, I'll, I'll list them here today. Um, some believe that Peter writes to those with less authority, those in these churches where he writes, they have less authority than others in the church. For example, I'm looking back into chapter 2, there Peter spent time writing to slaves and not to masters at all. Um, There, you know, the slaves had uh, much less authority than masters. Um, Those who were more likely to experience mistreatment, those were the target of his writing, or at least the bulk of it. Others believe that Compared to husbands, wives experienced a greater change once saved. In other words, culturally, there were norms that were now flouted. Uh, They had new liberties, all things considered. Well, with these big changes, there's more to say to you, wives, than husbands. A third view, I don't know how great this one is. Um, Some believe there were just more believing wives than husbands in the church, so Peter has more to say. Um, Ultimately, it's difficult to know exactly why there's one verse toward husbands and six verses toward wives, Uh, but we know whatever the reason that God has a plan for marriage, and his plan is always the best plan. And this morning, Peter begins by saying in the same way, he has something to say to husbands as he did to wives. 
Not only are wives to live in verse 1 in the same way, but, but husbands have a role to play as well. It's all interrelated. To our point this morning, point number one, husbands are to live with knowledge. Husbands are to live with knowledge. Peter writes that husbands are to live with your wives. We might say that we ought to determine to remain with wives. Peter would say, don't divorce no matter what. Live with your wife. The Bible gives two exceptions for marriage or for divorce. Uh, The first reason is Matthew 5. It's for the reason of sexual immorality. Now, the second comes from 1 Corinthians 7. That'd be abandonment by an unbeliever, where an unbeliever leaves. That's making divorce permissible. But it's important to note that in both of these situations in the Bible, divorce is permissible, not obligated. And I believe that behind these permissions would be Peter and Paul arguing and contending for a remaining together or a staying together. Live with your wife. If at all possible, remain even if infidelity occurs, even if she doesn't believe in Jesus and and wishes to leave, try to remain, Peter would say. Also, on the other side of that, in terms of expectations, live with your wife. The days when Jesus ministered, there were the conservative group of Jews and the liberal group of Jews, and both viewed this idea of divorce through their respective lenses. Some saw less reason for divorce, very narrowly, very specifically, and others more broadly. The liberal camp, for example, said a husband could divorce for all kinds of reasons. Maybe the wife burned dinner. Maybe she oversalted dinner. Maybe she was being disrespectful, speaking to a man in public, letting her hair down in public. Those would be some more liberal views for divorce in the days of Jesus. But he pushed back on that view. Don't divorce when expectations don't work out. Uh, Remain, live together, stay together. That would be a a strong view of marriage. Peter says more. He says, live with your wife in an understanding way. Literally, live together with her or with them according to knowledge. That statement just kind of hangs out there, like, what kind of knowledge, Peter? Peter, where do I find this knowledge? My Bible reads, live in in an understanding way. Some of your Bibles read, uh, live with consideration or live considerate of. Um, Really, my version and then that version of consideration, that's really an application of knowledge. I, I like the literal translation, live according to knowledge. Yet, what does that mean? Well, in the first place, this could refer to the husband's knowledge of his wife. Know your wife. Live according to the knowledge of your wife, who she is, what makes her happy, what makes her sad, what makes her mad. In this case, it'd be a call to husbands to be a thinker, to give thought to your wife. But this could also refer to a husband's knowledge of God. And just think about this for a moment. Peter's audience is coming to faith or recently come to faith in Christ. And the husbands may have been living with the knowledge of their wives, 
before they knew the Lord. As pagans, they knew their wives and they gave thought to their wives. But now, a whole new way of doing marriage is upon them. A biblical way of doing marriage. God's design. And and Peter's sharing that with them. We saw the, the instruction for wives last time in the first six verses. Wives just heard about that. Now husbands, brand new to faith, they're called to understand God's word and live according to knowledge. Live together according to knowledge. Knowledge of God, knowledge of marriage. It might even be best to see the meaning of this as both of those things. A knowledge of your wife and a knowledge of God. I mean, after all, Peter leaves this command kind of flapping in the breeze. Knowledge of what, Peter? Well, knowledge of everything. I mean, if you can get your hands on it, husband, and you can live that way, praise God. Understand your wife. Understand God's will for you with your wife and live that way. But that said, I would also at this point point you back to the Bible to let let the Bible be your primary resource for how you live with your wife. I mean, we will find great content in sermons and in blogs. We'll find great books about marriage. Husbands can look to the examples of other men, perhaps fathers or grandfather figures. There's traditions that are passed down that can be very helpful and fruitful for marriage. Experiences are great ally men. We learn to live with our wives as we learn about them, but we need to make the Word of God the primary place to understand knowledge and to apply that then in the marriage. I mean, the Bible alone possesses the insights of the designer as God designed man and woman and God ordained and designed marriage. He tells us how to then live together in that design. Peter gives us a sample of that knowledge. The writing of wives, he says, she is someone weaker since she is a woman. I notice that Peter makes a distinction here that women are not men. That's something we have to say in our present cultural climate. God made two biological sexes. He made man and he made woman. And that when he did, he made them different. Some things are going to be true of men that are are not true of women. And some things will be true of women that are, are not true of men. And he writes that since the wife is a woman, she is weaker. Perhaps a bothersome, bothersome statement to make. This is probably going back to the garden where God created Eve. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from Adam. But what exactly does Peter mean by weaker? Does he mean that she's intellectually weaker? That men are smarter? Well, there's nothing in the Bible to indicate that. In fact, you may find examples to the contrary. I think about Abigail who saved Nabal's hide. This was her husband. In his folly, he challenged a man with the bigger sword, David. Zipporah, that's Moses' wife. Zipporah saves Moses' life. You might even know of Queen Esther who saves a nation. So I think we can rule out intelligence, that that's not what Peter is saying here when he says that the wife is weaker. Wives or women are not intellectually inferior. Is he speaking about spirituality? 
Are men spiritually stronger than women? Well, our text last week showed this is not necessarily so. Remember that Peter addressed the wives of unsaved husbands last week. That means that those wives who he wrote to, they were in a position much stronger than their husbands. They were much spiritually stronger because they determined to go and follow Jesus. The husbands in that passage, they did not. And one reason that he addressed them is that they were much spiritually healthier healthier than their husbands. And they could minister to their husbands in a particular way, Peter lays that out, so that spiritually unhealthy men could come to faith in Jesus. The same is true today. Uh, In fact, there are statistics that show that, that women read their Bible more, that women pray more, that they are more theologically robust in their understanding of the Bible. I think it's safe to rule out spirituality here. Women are not spiritually weaker than men. What about emotionally? Is Peter saying that women are emotionally weaker than men? This view, in terms of emotional weakness, it views women as more emotional and less rational. Maybe they're hypersensitive or irrational. It's kind of this um, distinction where the argument would be women are, are emotional, but men are rational. The emotional blueprint here, I think, is more difficult to prove from Scripture. It's not as clean. Uh, This view maintains that women tend to make decisions based off of emotions, and those decisions tend to be wrong or or painful or have an often a high statistic or high propensity of of making bad decisions. But the Bible, again, the Bible has examples of both men and women making decisions that way. And as a point of argument, some have even contended that a woman's ability to share her emotions shows her to be healthier than a man. So examples of weakness and emotion, however we want to define that, they can be seen in both men and women. I don't believe that's what Peter means in this passage. Well, we're running out of options. Does he mean that women are weaker physically? This view gets the most attention. In terms of sheer strength, women are not as physically strong as men. It seems to me that that interpretation generally almost is always true, but no doubt there are exceptions to that. But I guess I'm asking why Peter would make that remark here where he does in this text. Maybe he's trying to illustrate the differences, you know, basic biology, that there's differences among men and women. Um, Maybe, again, he writes to a different culture than you and I today. Maybe in this early church as the gospel spread and Roman culture was bumping up against the gospel. Maybe he's trying to diminish uh, physical abuse or uh, uh, violence among male headship. But I think that the answer to this question lies in the context. I think it's simpler than these options. I think it's plainer. As a woman, she is weaker in terms of authority. God designed the husband to possess authority. Notice if you go back to verse 1, wives are to submit to their husbands. So that means that God did not grant the same authority to wives as he did to you, husbands. And that means that when your wife married you, she voluntarily put herself 
under your headship. She stepped out. She willingly, perhaps in faith, chose a position of submission. I believe that that's what Peter is writing to, and I think it fits really well with the context and his flow of writing. And the God who gave you this trust, husbands, has given you the know-how to lead your wives well. Inevitably, a husband will say, I can't figure out my wife. Yes, you can. Because the God who made her explains her. Read the Bible. Uh, Certainly there are passages in the Bible, we would call them marriage passages, that are solid gold on this topic. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 7, dare I say, Song of Solomon. But other parts of the Bible help us to live with wisdom, to live with our wives according to knowledge. I mean, take, for example, an Old Testament story. Read the Bible with this question in mind. What is the Bible teaching me about my marriage? How can I live according to knowledge based on what I'm reading in the Bible? Go to an Old Testament narrative. What is to be commended in the man and what is to be avoided in the man as you consider your marriage? How about Proverbs? What wisdom can I apply from this book to my marriage? How about Psalms? What can I learn about God and how God supports me in my role as leader? How about the prophets? What can I learn from Israel's failures in the prophets? The gospels are beautiful. There's examples of Jesus and how he treats other people. How can I apply that to my marriage or even the epistles? How can I solve problems in relationships? You see, the Bible helps us live according to knowledge. It's the only book, the only advice for marriage that's inspired by God. Live with your wife according to knowledge. Well, secondly, a a second virtue for men is to show her honor. Show her honor. This is the second virtue of the masculine husband. And to show her honor is to respect her. It's to value your wife. The Christian man should be well acquainted with this idea, this notion of showing honor. Look back at verse 17, chapter 2. In that passage, in that verse, we learn that we should honor all people. I mean, that's going to be true for, for all Christians, men and women alike, and we're going to apply that to all kinds of relationships. We ought to honor all people. We ought to honor the king, which reminds us, men, if you're finding it difficult to honor the president or the governor or the mayor, we might be able to empathize with our wives, who may also find it difficult to submit to us. The point here is that we're finding three commands to honor three different groups. This notion of honor, it ought to be part of our regular and daily living. That a husband should honor his wife reinforces this idea of of a weaker vessel. The the wife is willingly coming under the headship of the husband. She deserves honor. The husband should not be taking advantage of that or, or, or using it for personal gain, but rather he must honor his wife who's entrusted herself to him. To show honor means to seek her wisdom 
What does she see that you don't see? What perspectives does she have that you don't have? It means respecting her opinion. Spouses are allowed to disagree. A wife is not being unsubmissive if she sees things differently. And a a husband isn't dishonoring his wife if he chooses to make a, a decision different. But the husband all the while should be valuing her and appreciating her. It means to treat her kindly. Remembering, husbands, that our wives are neither superheroes nor slaves. She may not be an expert in every area of life. Husbands aren't either. We wouldn't want to dishonor her because she doesn't do things the way we would have them done or we think they should be done. At the same time, she's not a servant. God didn't give Eve to Adam so he could boss her around. No, they were compatible. They were, uh, she was a helpmate. And Peter really says it best here. He calls her a fellow heir of the grace of life. What a beautiful way to, to think about that relationship. Husbands and wives, are, they're both Christians in this scenario. They've both received a gift, an inheritance. They're both redeemed by Jesus Christ. This grace of life is, is the unmerited favor of eternal life. Over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes, There's neither Jew nor Greek, There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some are going to view that verse to see women as being equal with men, um, not only in value, but also in function, essentially erasing many of the differences. But I would say to that, just beware of reading one verse. Whenever we read our Bibles, let's seek to interpret them in the broader context and not just pulling out one verse. Because in the context there, Paul writes about salvation. He writes about faith. In verse 24, we may be justified by faith. In verse 25, faith has come. In verse 26, you are sons of God by faith. What Paul says there is that spiritually speaking, men and women, husbands and wives are equal. And he lists three categories outside of that relationship in verse 28 of Galatians 3. But even as he does that, distinctions remain. I mean, for example, Jews and Greeks, the ethnicity, the differences remain, though they're equal in standing before God. The status of of those who were slave and those who were, were, were free, those distinctions remained. And of course, when it comes to husband and wife or, or male and female there, Sexuality remains. Uh, Salvation doesn't erase chromosomes. Um, We are equal in Christ. We are equal by faith, but there are distinctions. So while the husband and wife are equal in value, they they are distinct in their their roles, and, and both are equal in importance. Both are made in the image of God, and both are needed, yet God is giving different commands to each. And going back then to 1 Peter chapter 3, we learned that husbands do not submit to wives, and we see that husbands exercise leadership. Some are going to hear that and claim this is toxic masculinity, but it's not. What's toxic is to, obey God, is to disobey God. I mean, it's, it's toxic to take God's design for marriage and, and try to, to redesign it and, and edit it. That's what's toxic. 
So just the opposite is what is good and what is non-toxic. It's to obey God. And Peter's going to write about some problems the husband will run into if he doesn't. It's the final part of verse 7. Husbands who don't follow this design, their prayers will be hindered. So what's the purpose? Why, why show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that, so that you will live happily ever after? So your marriage will be problem-free? No. It's much more important than that. So your prayers will not be hindered. And that means, husbands, men, what is Peter assuming here? What assumption is he making about Christian husbands? He assumes we're praying. Are you praying, brother? Are you talking to God? Are you praying for your wife? Do you have a relationship with God in prayer? The Bible is assuming here that, that Christian men, husbands, are praying. And we're seeing then that those who do not show honor to their wives, their prayers become hindered. The, the progress slows. It becomes more difficult to pray. And to possess this authority entrusted to us by God and to use it to dishonor our wives, this is not going to receive the favor of God. Look down at verse 12, 1 Peter 3. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this statement by Peter, as he concludes the verse, it's, it's particularly interesting. I mean, normally we associate prayer with living. Uh, we're saying that if we pray well, we're going to live well. Prayer helps a man live. But, but notice what he says here. How you live helps your prayer, men. How you live with your wife impacts your prayer life. Well, in summary, we are to live with knowledge and we are to show wives honor. We're going to grow in our understanding of God's Word, and if we're going to grow in our understanding of God's daughter, we can live with her in a knowledge-filled and, and understanding way. And if we're showing her honor, our prayers will not be hindered. To think of it another way, our father-in-law was always present and all-knowing. This is biblical masculinity in marriage. And before we sort out then who, who does what, it's always important here to, to, to understand who we are to be. What is masculine and what isn't is often the topic of these conversations, like what, what is the role and what is the task. But before any discussion then, men, about what that looks like, um, whether you, you wear dirty work boots or insulated slippers, whether you're in the, the beard oil club or the clean shave club, or whether you drive a Chevy Bolt or a Chevy Mustang, we're beginning with who we are to be before what we are to do. All those things I listed can be masculine or they, they cannot be masculine because we're beginning with who we are to be. And that, the list goes on. I mean, before there's any discussion about our duties, whether you're changing the oil or changing a diaper, whether you're cutting the grass or you're pruning the rose bush, 
uh, whether you're watching football or watching Pride and Prejudice. All these things can be masculine or not because masculinity begins with the heart. It begins with these virtues given by God. Masculinity begins with who we are. I think as Christian husbands, rightfully so, we have an interest in what God wants us to do. But before that, we must begin with who God wants us to be. To be a masculine husband, it's not bad. It's not a bad word. It's not a sin. It's God's design. And when applied, your two most important relationships will flourish. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your design. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness and sharing that design with us. Thank you for your grace that fuels our ability to live in your design. Lord, we confess that at times we don't do this well. It's difficult. We are in need of change. We're in need of your help and the example of Jesus Christ. And I I pray for us, I pray for our marriages, that they would indeed flourish. And we would hear your words spoken through Peter. And we would embrace them and, and love them and see the design as beautiful. I pray especially for husbands today. As we perhaps struggle to apply what you've given us, that you would give husbands a special grace to live with their wives in an understanding way, according to knowledge, and to show wives honor. Lord, we love you and we love your designs, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.